Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for September 5th, 2019. The Prolix Prorogue Edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Joining me in Washington, D.C. Back. Back is favorite GabFest substitute, GabFest guest, Ruth Marcus of the Washington Post. Hello, Ruth. Hello, and I, I thought it was prorogue, and thank you for clarifying that. Oh, what would, what's the alternative? Prorogue? I oh, don't no. know. It all sounds oh, I don't bad. Know. I've never it heard it said. Sound like a, what sounds like one of those words you shouldn't say out loud. Yes. It's true. Well, Boris Johnson is a prorogue. He's certainly a professional rogue. Ruth, so great to have you back. You are it's on great Book to League. be here. I yeah. am... About to finish up book leave, about, but I'm book working about. on a book about Justice Brett Kavanaugh, Whoa. who he is, what happened, and why it matters. All right. I can't wait to see that. Ruth Me is sitting neither. In, Ruth is sitting in for <laughs> John Dickerson, who is hither and yon, uh, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine, and Yale University Law School joins us from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. And hey, Ruth. Great that you're here. Hi. On today's GabFest is Joe Biden really the front runner for the Democratic primary? If he is, can he maintain front runner front runnerdom? Then what on God's green earth is happening in the British Parliament? We will go into Brexit with a special guest, Amanda Taub of the New York Times. Then have we turned the corner on the opiate epidemic or not? Plus we will have cocktail chatter and a reminder that we are going to be live in the Twin Cities on Wednesday, September 18th at the Fitzgerald Theater in St. Paul, Minnesota. And I'm thrilled to say we're going to have a guest. Our special guest is Twin Cities-based novelist Curtis Sittenfeld, the author of such magnificent books as Prep and American Wife. And if you think it, I'll say it. Such a good writer on politics, the fiction of politics or the politics of fiction. And she's going to talk to us about how to write fiction about politicians. And she's just also a delightful company. So that'll be fun. Get tickets for that show. There are just a few left at slate.com slash live. Again, Wednesday, September 18th in St. Paul, Minnesota, slate.com slash live. What, Ruth Marcus, is going on with Joe Biden? There are the gaffes, the confabulated stories, the erosion in the polls, the sense that he is, he is tenuous as a front runner at best. Is he still the front runner? Uh, for the moment, he is the front runner. I feel like this is the point where you have to intone the polls are a snapshot of the moment and could change at any moment. But I do think we have seen this uh, democratic field and field of many uh, congeal. Do fields congeal? I don't know. It I, seems I wrong. Know. Come together, um, but, winnow? Um, but it has winnowed. Winnow. I think winnowed. You, winnow. Winnow. you winnow a field. A you congeal, I don't know, a flock of ducks, <laughs> whatever it is. Um, he is still at the top, but it is, I feel like he both has persisted to use a word that's not a Joe Biden word, but another uh, politician word at the top of this field. And 
it is very tenuous. He is like a gaff or two away from not being the front runner. But what, or Emily, what is the tenuousness? What, com- why do people sense that it is tenuous? He has had this position at the top really since the moment he entered the field. You know, the, except for one outlier poll, he has always been at the top everywhere. Why do people seem to feel like this is not a, a strong, solid state for him to be? I don't think it's that tenuous. And I maybe listeners remember this, but before Biden got into the race, I think we all, not you, Ruth, but I think the rest of us wrote him off. Um, It seemed like he was too old, too gaff prone, too much the past of the Democratic Party. But instead, it has been true for months that there is support for him in the party. And he, according to some polls, does not have like an enthusiasm gap. He has high numbers of very favorable among different groups of Democrats. And he's also the person who polls the best with moderate Democrats, with African-Americans, uh, which is l- much less true of Warren and Sanders. So I think it's a pretty abiding support and preference. I mean, it's sort of I still feel like it's his to lose. It's possible that he could lose. And he has this problem in Iowa, which is that because that's a whiter electorate, he might actually do worse there. But I feel like we should take seriously the relative breadth of his support, right? I mean, Warren still polls really well with very liberal Democrats um, and white Democrats who are very liberal. But she hasn't really shown that she can make that support more broad. And I also feel like Bernie also still seems, particularly to me of the three of them, like the most of a niche candidate. So, yeah, Biden has his weaknesses, but he may also be the person who's left standing at the end if he doesn't blow it. Well, yes, that's that's the big if. And a couple really interesting things have happened in the last week or so. Uh, one is the interesting positioning of the Biden campaign to sort of um, preemptively lower expectations in Iowa and New Hampshire, which is, you know, the smart thing to do. But it's not a, exactly an example of leading by strength of, well, our candidate could still win if he and as as you point out his potential weaknesses in Iowa. He could still win if he loses Iowa. He could still win if he loses New Hampshire. That's kind of, that's true, but kind of not true as well. If you look at history, it has not been the case that a candidate has won the primary, leaving aside a certain President Clinton without winning Iowa or New Hampshire. And that was a particularly unusual case. Maybe all cases are unusual in the age of Trump. The other thing that's happening is Biden seems to me to be suffering from a little bit of what I would call Hillary Clinton syndrome. And what I mean by that is that he becomes his own worst enemy, as I can't even think of how many columns that I wrote out of absolute exasperation. And just to be clear, I was a huge fan of Hillary Clinton's, and I kept writing these columns that talked about how she was becoming her own worst enemy. And that strikes me as equally, if not more, true of Biden. And the example that I would give of that right now has to do with his really puzzling response to the story in the Washington Post about the conflating of the story about pinning the medal on a soldier who said he didn't deserve it. And why you would not say, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, I should have been more clear. It was this. And I put this together. And I will try to be clearer in the future instead of saying, well, the details don't matter if the essence of the story is true. That just seems um, 
I get maybe we're grading on a curve in the age of Trump, but we shouldn't. Uh, we need to grade on the same curve of accuracy as we always grade on. Why you would sort of double down and make your problem worse instead of better. With Hillary Clinton, it was she wouldn't apologize for what she had done that was clearly a mess up. For Biden, he should just say, oh, I should have told the story in a clearer way. I'll do better in the future. And you can move on. Instead, he dug himself deeper. The the thing that I find so puzzling about the Biden campaign, Emily, is that there is nothing vivid about it. That he is, he seems unable to articulate what he would be as president, why he wants to be president, other than that he wants to be president, and his vision of politics seems so out of step with what appears to have happened in the country over the past twenty years. Do I understand? Like he has, he was the vice president for a very popular and excellent president. He did a good job as vice president. He's, I think, a, a man of of honor and and devoted to service and he's got he has warmth to him but beyond that it's this this absence of kind of a verb to say here's what i want to do is confounding yeah i mean he has he's the nostalgic candidate right and the back to normal candidate and i think there are a lot of americans who feel like if we can just rid ourselves of trump that like that looks pretty good to them and maybe they even go back further in the past because biden's old enough to have associations with other decades as well. It is out of step with the way that both the Republican and the Democratic base think about politics and with the much bigger promises and push for systemic change that both Warren and Sanders are campaigning on. But I think there feels like a safety to it and that Biden can just talk about returning the country to normal, that, you know, this idea of of being the safe candidate has appeal. It's also true that some of the Democratic support is because people think he's the person who can beat Trump. And so if he doesn't win in Iowa and New Hampshire and he looks uh, evitable instead of inevitable. So, yeah, that's one of those words that just that's, doesn't happen like that, right? I like it, though. Evitable yeah. should be a word. Double negatives have been bothering me a lot lately, so I was trying to stay away from it. Anyway, if he looks beatable, then some of that could slip away and um, maybe other candidates could uh, benefit from that kind of slide. But I – yeah, I feel like – It's a mistake that, you know, especially people who like us, like me, I'll just talk about myself, who write about politics, we're not that surrounded by the people who are paying a lot less attention and who just want to feel like they can live their lives and like outsource Washington and politics and policy choices. And I feel like if you're one of those Democrats, Biden could have a lot going for him. Ruth, what is the um, what's the Warren kind of counter to this? I mean, one one thing that I've read is is that, well, the first three states, I think the first three states, Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada are well set up for Warren. And you can imagine if she takes two of those states or takes you know, takes all three of them, that that completely alters at least the, the narrative about this and maybe drives Sanders out of the race or clears the field in some other way. What is the other case that, that Warren should be making that, oh, this is, this is actually my race, not Biden's race? I think that what she's doing is um, having a plan for everything and occupying increasingly, I think, the turf of Sanders. And so elbowing him out of the way and setting herself up very clearly and effectively 
as the Biden alternative. Biden's strongest argument is the electability argument. In fact, when he talks about why he's running and whether he would be running if he if it were if he were not running against Trump, it seems not. He is running because he thinks that he is the the one who can beat Trump and that it is essential for him to beat Trump. And that is, by the way, a very strong and compelling argument to a lot of people, including me. The, the thing that I find confounding about it, just to go back to Biden for a second, is his kind of gauzy recollection of the very recent past of, you know, he t- talks about how we can have this awake kind of Rapunzel-like awakening in the world after Trump, where we go back to a situation where Republicans once again frolic happily across the Capitol steps with Democrats and we can all get along. Well, note to Biden, that was not true. Hello, uh, Justice Merrick Garland. Uh, Before Trump, we've had a lot of conversation during the Obama administration, of which I gather that the vice president was a part about how we were good. the fever was going to break after this election or that election. And guess what? The fever never broke. Republicans were not compliant or agreeing to go along with Democrats before Trump was elected. And there's not a lot of reason right. to think that we're going to return to some happier time that didn't exist in the recent past uh, once Trump is out of office. So I'm a little bit confused about why he is selling that case, which he kind of knows is not the true case. Right. That you're raising something which just gets under my skin so much, which is that the, the example that Biden is always citing is McCain, who's not in office. There <laughs> yes, is no hello, Lindsey the, Graham. The only person you can cite is this dead or, senator who was who was basically disavowed by most of his party anyway. And he only so, did one thing. I mean, it was a big thing. But like, let's not exaggerate his like amazing bipartisanship in the last few years before he did die. The the uh, do you think, Emily, that um, Ruth is Ruth is mentioning that the there's Warren is maybe elbowing Sanders. Do you agree with this? analysis that we are at a three-person race, that really even Harris and Buttigieg not legitimately in it, and that everybody else is completely legitimately in it. And if that is the if you do agree with that, where where does that support start to flow once those people do tumble? I think Harris or Buttigieg could still pop back up. I mean, the thing is, we've seen them kind of rise in the polls and then fall fairly quickly. And so that lack of sustained support does mean that, yeah, it is like if you're looking at the polls over time, it does look like Warren and Sanders and Biden are the only ones who are getting real traction. But there's still so much time before the election. Like if I were them, I would keep on going. And there are a couple other people, I don't know, like Cory Booker, maybe just because I can't figure out why he hasn't taken off more, who I would say the same thing about. Uh I don't know where all that support's going to go. I mean, I don't know. Like, is there really any way for us to know? This is where I just feel like punditry starts to become, like, made up, at least coming out of my mouth. Ruth, but, Ruth will pundit high. <laughs> yeah, well, you go. Thank you so you, much for that introduction. <laughs> you at least live inside the Beltway. No. I don't even do that. So w- one of the things that's really interesting to me, and I've been thinking about this a lot, is the paradox that – the size of the Democratic field seems to have created this almost premature winnowing of the Democratic field. It was too big for people not to fail. Mm -hmm. Um, So 
if and it and it's an interesting contrast to the Republicans in 2016, where everybody seemed to have cycled through and at least had their couple weeks of a real moment. Here, people didn't even get their moment in the sun before they were shuffled off the debate stage, and I think that's partly because there were simply too many people for that to pay for us to be able to pay attention to any of them before they just receded from view. At the same time, I think it's wrong to think that we're down to three because there's a little bit of a buzzard aspect here. There's people who are circling who could be the moderate alternative to a Warren Sanders if Biden, as is possible. And I don't mean to sound so negative about Joe Biden, because I really like him. I'm much more politically attuned to him than um, any of the three remaining candidates in the now completely winnowed field, joking here. Um, But I do think that he has the ability to shoot himself in the foot repeatedly. And so there's, if you were a Booker or a Klobuchar or anybody who can cling to the debate stage. I thought it was smart for Senator Gillibrand to get out of it. If you're not in the debate, you're not in the debate. But um, if you're any of those others, it would be premature to get out and because you never know what's going to happen in politics. And one thing you know is if you're not in the race, you're not going to be the nominee. So we're not down to three, but we could be down to two-ish probably sooner than we thought we would be. Hey, one uh, person who I wish would get onto that debate stage is Steve Bullock. I feel like we're really missing the Midwestern governor in the story and that because Hickenlooper wasn't particularly compelling on the debate stage and has now dropped out, uh, there's like an opening there. And I heard someone who knows more than me, talk about this. I can't remember where, that uh, one of the problems for the governors is that their campaign war chests don't just seamlessly turn over into federal races. And so they're at a disadvantage to these senators, even though their experience as executives is much more relevant to the presidency. So two points. One, that was on The Daily. Thank you. Uh, I heard that. Bullock is a Western governor, not a Midwestern governor. Just note, he's from Montana. Well, true. Montana is the West. Yes, I'm glad that you clarified. uh, But I think that's the other point about governors is that they represent a form of politics in a way, as Biden does, a form of politics which is – it's hard to believe in. So it is true at the state level, governors still manage to get things done and because states kind of have to. They have balanced budget requirements and and you – do have to run schools and and uh, you know pick up trash and do all the things that's you know licensed businesses the things that states need to do, but again the federal the way the federal government works or doesn't work these days is, does not really bear any relationship to how state governments work and so I think there's a there's a way in which the policy that that belief that oh these executives can come in and they know how government works and they can accomplish things. It's it's harder to believe in that now than it was when Bill Clinton or George W. Bush was running for president. Well, except that Washington works worse. So I think that the, fa- the fizzling of the governors um, or the seeming fizzling of the governors in the Democratic field is something of a surprise. And it can't only be explained by the fundraising and um, campaign finance rules of the situation, because it used to be that being from inside the beltway, as Emily said, is a a debit for a presidential candidate, not a plus. 
that people wanted people, governors who had had experience in actually running things and being executives and not just bloviating, which is the you know, fundamental job description of senators, especially in the age of McConnell, where we don't actually pass legislation anymore. So I'm um, both surprised and disappointed that the governors haven't taken off. Right. But why are you surprised? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a nationalized election. It's an election about Trump. It's not about particular executive competence. And there's this sense that actually it's so much the, – the executive competence piece of it is not that important because Washington doesn't work anyway and we really just need to get this, this, this villain out of office. Well, we need to get the villain out of office, but we would like to replace the villain with somebody who is in fact executively competent and the people who have over time tended to be able to – uh, demonstrate that executive competence are the people who have actually demonstrated it in office. No, I guess I'm not surprised to find to find governors doing so badly. Like pe- that's not where people are paying attention. It might just be the age of celebrity um, that a, that an obscure governor, a Jimmy Carter, uh, Bill Clinton, could not right. actually surface right. if we had the technology right. and media infrastructure then that we have now. Um, Emily, I want to end with you. I have one last question, which is there was a very interesting piece by Paul Rosenberg, and I can't remember where it was now. I apologize. Paul Rosenberg. In Salon uh, about Joe Biden and the persistence of Joe Biden. And one of the points that Rosenberg makes, which I found extremely interesting and persuasive, was that, yes, Biden can win. It is certainly possible he can win for all the reasons everyone has cited, but that it would almost certainly lead to a quite disastrous wipeout for Democrats in a couple of years as he – would fail to get anything done because there's this no do nothing resistant uh, Congress and a, a Republican certainly will be Republicans in the Senate will have the ability to block anything significant that he wants to get done. And he also doesn't fire anyone up and it wouldn't. And the Democratic base will be disillusioned. The Republicans will be excited again. And that that whatever kind of brief reprieve that the country has from Trumpism, which will be a useful reprieve if Biden or anyone else is elected, it in the long run, it will not be good for the Democrats who need to move forward with a more active and aggressive and forward thinking politics. Yeah, I I do think I'm sympathetic to that argument. I mean, as someone who does think we need bigger systemic change, especially in terms of thinking about inequality and the way that the economy works and that you know, huge and widening gap between the gains for corporations and the gains for workers. That concerns me. I mean, one way to think about this election is that imagine that Trump is like Jimmy Carter, so failed that there is an opportunity for like more than snapping back to the status quo, but actually like a revolution like the Reagan revolution. I mean, it's not a real revolution, but you know what I mean, like a real victory for the other side. And I think that Biden would be a squandering of that opportunity unless he governs in a completely different way than he has so far been a politician or has campaigned. And that doesn't seem super likely to me, although I do flirt in my mind with the idea of him choosing a running mate like Stacey Abrams, who is like this big progressive voice and then really giving her a platform. But of course, I say that because I'm so in the bag for Stacey. I, you know, I just want to say one thing. I I read that piece and I thought, oh, for goodness sakes, why don't we just concentrate on the task at hand that's beating Trump and then we could worry about (laughs) where things go later. 
And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the split in the Democratic Party in a nutshell. Slate Plus members, lucky you. What a lucky ducky you are to be a Slate Plus member, which you got for just $35 for your first year of membership. You get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts, as well as ad-free versions of the podcasts. And today on Slate Plus, we're going to be talking about the court in North Carolina that just tossed out its very partisan gerrymandering effort by the Republican Party and what that portends for politics in North Carolina and in other states. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is like some form of Greek mythological punishment. You think Brexit will be done, and yet it is never done. It's your liver being eaten every day. It is you rolling a Brexit-shaped rock up a Matterhorn-shaped hill, and it rolls down and falls on Prince Harry's head every single day. It just never ends, and yet it remains fascinating and horrifying all at the same time. We are joined now by... Amanda Taub, she is columnist for The Interpreter at The New York Times. She's joining us from London via Skype. Hello, Amanda. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. So I'm going to start with a challenge. One of my favorite things is sometimes when they do Shakespeare in 60 seconds and then in 30 seconds. So (laughs) first, in 60 seconds, Mm -hmm. I want you to explain what has happened in this tumultuous week in the British Parliament. And then you're going to do the same thing in 15 seconds. (laughs) So are you game? Are you game for that? It'll just. Doesn't have to inverse. <laughs> I'll give it a shot. Go. Okay. This tumultuous week has been Boris Johnson's government has said they want to leave the EU on October 31st, no matter what. And Parliament is trying to stop that. And so they have been attempting various bills that would give Parliament the authority to prevent what they call a no-deal Brexit, which is leaving the EU without any kind of agreement to still be able to have things like imports of fresh food and medicines and other minor unimportant life details like that. Um, This week has seen incredible parliamentary shenanigans, which included Boris Johnson attempting to suspend Parliament through a complicated procedural maneuver involving the Queen, also the expulsion of 21 members of the Conservative Party for voting against the government. Uh, Members of the House of Lords were bringing sleeping bags and pillows into the chambers of Westminster last night because they were expecting to need to stay all night. Um, But the eventual outcome is that Boris Johnson has lost his majority Parliament now has the authority, if it chooses to exercise it in the appropriate way, to prevent a no-deal Brexit. Boris Johnson has said that there should be a new general election. Weirdly, the opposition parties have said that there shouldn't be one yet because they are worried that this isn't good timing for them. And now everyone is just very tired. I think everyone working in politics or covering politics in the country was up working until at least two in the morning last night. And so now people are kind of stumbling around bleary eyed wondering what's about to happen next. Okay, now 15 seconds. 
Boris Johnson wants to be the person best known for opposing Brexit. This week has been great for him because he has gotten to do that roughly every 20 minutes, but he's lost his parliamentary majority and now no one knows when there will be a new election or when there will be a Brexit. That was good. All right. I just want to add that his own brother has resigned from not just the party, the Conservative Party, but also from Parliament. I enjoy that. And from being his brother. At least they don't have Thanksgiving. (laughs) Um, Good point. Well, so Boris Johnson was technically American. They might have they might have um, Thanksgiving. He had U.S. citizenship for a while until he renounced it. Amanda, can you? All right. So let's back us up. You've given us the, the, the kind of broad landscape there very quickly and persuasively. There was this moment last week, I think, time time stretches and compresses with Brexit. So Before you get to what happened last week, that actually reminds me of my very favorite thing that happened yesterday, which was at one point somebody proposed that the House of Lords could make it just stay Wednesday for as many days as they wanted. Wait, uh, what? <laughs> 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 their procedures, somebody put forward that if they kept debate going until I think 10.30 a.m. this morning, they would be allowed as a matter of parliamentary procedure to extend Wednesday and as long as they needed in order to kind of keep their legislative agenda and votes open and moving. And so there was at one point, as far as I can tell, a proposal under consideration to stop the forward march of time in order to try to address this legislative issue. If you were going to preserve one day that was going to go on forever, would it be Wednesday? Definitely not. No, no. It's It's better than Tuesday, but really. Yeah, yeah. So, sorry, I interrupted you. That was was a good interruption. So going backwards, a lot of this seems to have been kicked off by prorogue, the prorogue movement by Johnson. Can you just explain again to Catfest listeners what that was and why that was so outrageous? And was this all part of a is this all part of a deliberate Johnson plan to essentially explode everything anyway? Yes. So um, taking those questions in order, proroguing is basically an attempt The reason it's so complicated is that Boris Johnson is, everyone believes, using some shenanigans to run out the clock on legislative time before the Brexit deadline on October 31st. So right now, the country will leave the EU on October 31st unless there's some sort of intervention. But there's no agreement in place about how that will occur, which means that the kind of dreaded no deal is on the horizon and everyone is very worried about it. Boris Johnson has done, by proroguing politics, uh, parliament, he has basically set a Queen's speech for, I believe it's October 11th, which is a normal thing that happens, but carves out about a week out of the legislative calendar. So it it effectively suspends parliament while they're dealing with Queen-related tasks. Because of that, and because there are parliamentary recesses coming up anyway, that would essentially leave Parliament with only slightly more than a week to come to some sort of agreement about Brexit or stop Brexit. This was widely seen as kind of procedural shenanigans in order to run out the clock. I mean, sort of the roughly the equivalent of if you were in a soccer game, just kind of hiding the ball behind a bush and saying that they need to keep the clock running while you look for the ball. It has been very controversial. 
even though it is technically something that, uh, you know, they have an argument for under parliamentary procedure, politically it's been widely seen as um, a kind of out of bounds thing to do, um, something that violates norms of British Parliament, if not officially the law. So that is fascinating to me. It's an example of constitutional hardball. And um, your partner in the interpreter column, Max Fisher, has a really interesting piece, I think, pointing out that what is happening in Britain that's different from so many other countries that have had a populist right-leaning uprising, including our country, is that constitutional hardball breaking these unwritten norms, it didn't work. It basically like blew up in Johnson's face and the opposition was able to um, prevent or at least like blunt the effect of this proroguing strategy by taking back power through institutional means as opposed to playing a kind of game for tit of tit for tat, as Max says. And that seems really important. I mean, I feel like we're watching this incredible drama unfold. And look, if you don't live in the UK and fear yourself the consequences of a hard exit Brexit, then it's all like entertaining as, as in addition to fascinating. But it's reassuring to see that, you know, 21 members of the Conservative Party walked out, that there were people in politics who were willing to put what they saw as the longer term health and safety of the country above the interests of their party. Anyway, I, I mean, look, can, it's, we're wait, in the middle I, of the drama, I, but it seems like so far so good, right? Can I can I argue yes. there? So what I want to argue with is I've been thinking about this a lot. And, and one is... I think as somebody who valorizes parliamentary democracy, I, I think I always assume, well, the par- parliamentary system always works because a parliamentary, you always have a parliamentary majority. If you don't, you have an election and then things get solved. And here you have an example where there's a parliamentary majority. It is now it doesn't exist. And so there's there's the government is unable to do the things that it wants to do. Um, but I think what Britain has done with by putting the Brexit to a popular referendum, they have introduced a new source of legitimacy in politics, a new a, a new foundation for legitimacy, which is this popular vote. So you had a popular vote for something. You had a parliament which didn't want the thing that the people voted for. And so you end up in the situation with with competing legitimacies around politics and no majority for anything. So it is true that at this moment, Emily, you're right, that there's that the that the defection of these Tories and the the rebellion against Johnson has stopped Johnson's parliamentary shenanigans, which would have forced this hard Brexit. But it hasn't created. There is no legitimate majority that people can agree on, which is able to accomplish anything. There's no consensus within the country, either from the people or from the the institution of government, the parliament, which says we are going to do this explicit thing and that, that we have support for it. And, and so it's, it, it remains a complete crisis to me because there isn't a source of legitimate political majority anywhere. Right. I mean, everyone seems really good at saying no, but not figuring out what to say yes to. But isn't the answer to that, David, what happens next? Right. Like, do we have does the country have elections and then does a actual solid majority come out of that for either, you know, labor or the conservative party, Boris Johnson or somebody else who steps forward? I mean, if we en- if the country ends up with all this fracturing and still no consensus, then I think you're totally right. So I think that something that is a a little bit hidden right now is what the consequences of this will be for the Tory party 
Because essentially what has happened, because these 21 MPs stood up and said they were willing to sacrifice their political careers, is a whole bunch of moderates and kind of elder statesmen types are now out of the party. And I was talking to Ali Cerrone yesterday. She's a um, political science professor at Cornell, and she compared it to kind of Trumpification of the Republican Party in the U.S. She said, you know, this could prove a Pyrrhic victory if in the end what you have is a conservative party where everyone who is left is really going for this populist message that only the, you know, only the result of the referendum is the thing with legitimacy um, and parliament should just be kind of delivering Brexit, whatever the consequences. So I think that there's the sort of short-term feel-good moment, but because this is such a time of change and you know uncertainty in British politics, it's really not clear what the consequences of it are gonna be. My fundamental question is, don't we need another referendum? Don't we need a, maybe it's in the form of an election? But it feels like the we? British. Who's the we, we there? We the, Brit- <laughs> we the British people. Doesn't do, doesn't the country, the United Kingdom, need another referendum because the people voted but didn't necessarily understand or think through the consequences of what they were voting for, and their representatives have had problem implementing that ever since for that reason and we're being governed by a referendum that might not have a majority if it were to be put get back again to the people it might something that i haven't seen discussed as much is that in a way we're actually in this bizarre stable equilibrium of instability where this current situation of it always seeming like Brexit is about to happen and thereby maintaining the Brexit debate and letting everyone kind of cater to the Brexit issue sides, which right now are the most kind of powerful political identities in the country, is kind of working for people. I mean, I think that, for instance, Boris Johnson's position will actually get much weaker if there is a decision one way or another on how Brexit is going to go, because right now he has really staked his political reputation on being the person who is fighting for this rather than the person who has a plan to do what needs to be done after Brexit happens. And so I think even if there were to be a referendum, probably the result would be the same thing again. Uh, Continued fighting over the details, continued insistence that there is some mythical solution out there that requires no sacrifices from anyone. And, you know, even if the result went differently the next time, then you would just have, you know, the same thing again, people saying, well, the first referendum was the more legitimate one and we should we should go with that, or the second one was, and then there would be maybe a third tiebreaker referendum, I don't know. So what's the exit I mean, strategy then? I mean, then you're just talking about like sclerosis of, po- I mean, it's in some ways, I realize that it's sort of fundamental, but it's also like this huge distraction from actually making the country stronger, better, more, pro- you know, more, mm-hmm. um, What's the word? Prosperous. Yeah, I mean, as a procedural matter, Parliament could revoke Article 50. And Article 50 is the legal mechanism that means Britain is leaving the European Union. Um, But right now, it seems like everyone is kind of waiting for somebody else to make the decision or there to be some other form of legitimacy for something that will resolve this. 
and it's just not happening. Why is the British political system, which I think Americans think of as having produced, you know, Benjamin Disraeli and Winston Churchill and Margaret Thatcher and, you know, Titanic, Titanic <laughs> figures. Why is it producing such <laughs> bad I leaders? Titanic? Titanic? <laughs> <laughs> Titanic in a good way. Yes. Not Titanic like the ship. Titanic, you know, yes. Atlas-like. Uh, gods, gods among men. Why is the political system producing such weak parties and bad leaders? Why, why, is, it, why is there so little excellence in this, this magnificent system? One thing that I put a lot of stock in is the fact that party leaders are selected differently from MPs. So right now, the um, two main parties have this system that is almost like a primary election on steroids, where only people who are actually members of the party, not just voters in that party, it's not an open election like we have at US primaries, can vote for the leader. And those people, just like primary voters in the US, tend to be you know, a little bit older, more ideological, to have stronger views on divisive issues. The same is true of the kind of party memberships here in the UK. And so that means that the people who in effect elect the prime minister are different from the electorate who elect the legislature. And I think that that has produced some really weird outcomes because the leader of the party in a parliamentary system has tremendous power over who gets to be an MP, as we saw when 21 of them just got expelled from the Conservative Party. But the system isn't really taking into account that they have different constituencies in a lot of ways and different incentives. You know, for instance, both Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn have the support of, you could call them the sort of more extremist wings of their respective parties and are very much kind of catering to them in their policies and their rhetoric. And that means that for the kind of vast middle of the voting public, they're sort of stuck deciding between going with one of the main parties, even if it doesn't necessarily match up with where they are politically, or voting for a smaller party like the Liberal Democrats with the knowledge that they're probably not going to win the election. And so in some ways, you're reducing the power of your vote. Um, And all of that is just leading to a lot of weird, weird outcomes in the party system. Amanda, last question. I know you're you yourself. I'm well. I'm guessing, judging by your accent, that you yourself are not British. But what is it like to be in Britain right now in this endless state of uncertainty? What does the impact appear to be on people to be living in this this moment of this fog that just goes on and on and on? You know, it's. It's very strange. A lot of the time feels like I'm in this kind of never ending production of waiting for Godot, where everyone is talking about this thing that is maybe going to happen in the future, but no, and everyone agrees that it's incredibly important, but nobody knows exactly what it is or what it is we're waiting for or if it's ever going to come. And so far, it's not coming. But in other ways, life is sort of going on as normal. If everyone sort of tunes in at the end of the day to watch the BBC and see that, you know, Brexit is still uncertain and still might be catastrophic or still might be fine. And then they get up and go to work the next day. And, you know, things are just kind of ticking along with a little bit less vigor behind them and a little bit less kind of excitement about the future. That sounds like a description of life itself, ticking along with a little bit less vigor. Keep calm a little and bit less carry on. I, I think they have a motto. Yes. Amanda Taub writes the interpreter column for the New York Times. She is based in London. Thanks so much for joining us, Amanda. Thank you so much. 
Hey, Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. The opioid crisis has ravaged the United States for more than a decade, as many as 70,000 people a year dying because of drug overdoses, mostly because of opiates. Those numbers, those fatality numbers have declined slightly in the past couple of years, but it remains a tragedy of monumental proportions. Millions of Americans addicted to prescription opiates, almost a million addicted to heroin and fentanyl, which are non-prescription sort of street drugs or in the male drugs in the case of fentanyl. Um, and there's this, we're at this moment where there's this legal assault taking place on the manufacturers and distributors of, of prescription opiates. I don't know that there's a sense that anything has changed, but the sense that maybe the crisis is, has peaked and is, is on its way down. Um, so Ruth, start with the legal question. Are these companies being punished in an appropriate way? Who should be punished? Why should they be punished? Um, should they cease to exist? Should they just be paying billions of dollars? Should they, you know, they should their executives be whipped and flayed in the streets? What what is the right thing that should happen legally, and is it happening? Well, I'm not sure about whipping and flaying, but uh, yes, they should be punished, uh, and they should be punished uh, for two reasons or in two ways. Uh, one is because you need to create a disincentive for companies to unleash dangerous drugs like this in the future. Effective but dangerous drugs. In other words, these are medications that were necessary for some people, but that seem to have been oversold, overprescribed, and underwarned. And they, the companies seem to have known about it. They encouraged it. They incentivized their salespeople to do this. And They took no steps to stop it. So it is important to, number one, disincentivize them from doing this in the future, and number two, to find the source of funds, their ill-gotten gains, billions of dollars in ill-gotten gains, to help people deal with the consequences of their addiction, which is enormously expensive and enormously painful and uncertain process of overcoming addiction. It's kind of like the cigarette litigation where you see a company basically realize how much harm it's doing and hide the evidence for that from the public and continue to make a ton of money and then start to pay, at least at first, what is basically like a tiny percentage of their profits in these legal settlements. The next step would be a kind of master settlement, the way we had in the cigarette litigation where the drug companies you know, there's one big um, set of 
settlement payments that, you know, really could be reparations, really could make a difference in people's lives and provide treatment. And we have not seen that yet. These, this is just like the beginning of any kind of accountability. And I, I think it's also important to talk about the need for, and it's, we have, we can't sue the government and put government officials in jail for not doing their jobs here, but we need to find a mechanism for figuring out how the government failed its people here as well, because if you look at the magnificent Washington Post series that got to this DEA database of millions of pills being sent to tiny communities well in excess of anything they could have legitimately needed, yes, the the pharmaceutical companies and the distributors and the pharmacists and everybody else should have known and should have taken steps to stop this. But also this was it within the knowledge of the government that is supposed to protect us and to protect us from the selling of dangerous drugs. And it's clear that as the pharmaceutical companies and distributors and everybody else involved in this process for for financial reasons didn't uh, allow this to happen to our country, the regulators and the enforcers were equally or similarly complicit in their failure. And we need to have some reckoning on that as well. Do you think, this is an unanswerable question, I suppose, do you think that if you were an executive at a pharma company or at one of these distribution companies that you really felt like these drugs were good and you didn't, you didn't really didn't know what was going on or did you know Oh yeah, this is we're just we're just feeding a generation of addicts. Or did you think like, oh no, people are really in pain. There's a huge amount of pain in this country. Millions of people on disability, and we're helping them because it's very hard. It is hard to be a kind of a, a willful sadist. People, I think, tend to delude themselves. I don't think they tend to act with malice when they don't have to. Well, there there is a lot of good that the drugs do in terms of preventing pain, right? Like that is a real benefit. And I think you could talk yourself into that being the primary purpose of distributing drugs for a while. But then, I mean, we've had evidence for, you know, what, like eight or ten years that this has just spun so far out of control and that there these drugs were a gateway to drugs like heroin that were causing these lifetime addictions. So I don't know how you could keep deluding yourself without just – acknowledging that you are just trying to line your pockets or make your company richer. Well, the human capacity for self-delusion is rather limitless in my view. But <laughs> as, with the, as with the cigarette manufacturers, the ability to say and, – and this is a different um, – you make a really important point about the benef- – there are no beneficial effects of cigarettes that – you know, maybe helps you concentrate or peps you up or something. But there are no fundamentally beneficial effects of cigarettes. This is a slightly harder case at the outset because there are beneficial effects of these medications. However, the drug companies seem to me to have um, failed to understand or acknowledge the likely addictive effects of their medications. They downplayed it once they learned it, and then they didn't take steps to make certain once they understood or should have understood that, um, to make certain that people who people who have their wisdom teeth out don't actually need 30 pills. Maybe they need five, and but the drug companies have an incentive to sell them 30 uh, because that's more money in their pockets. And so were they knowingly conscious that they were creating this national crisis? 
on an individual basis. I'm a big believer in self-delusion, which makes me a big believer in negligence. And But there was gross, reckless negligence on the part of these individuals. I did not realize until I was doing the reading that that it is that people are skeptical of the idea that these are even good for chronic pain. I didn't understand that that actually if you're going to if you have chronic pain problems you probably shouldn't get on something that is a long-term addictive drug that you need to find some some remedy that isn't just taking some pills every day because your tolerance increases and you become addicted and then you're in a much worse state, shape than you were before and that that so that they're really good for acute pain for something short-term or something which is going to kill you, but not necessarily for something which is just going to nag at you for the rest of your life. I think it's an important point, and I heard a fascinating interview with Travis Ryder. He is a medical bioethicist, and he was in a motorcycle crash that required him to get off of, get onto opioids, and then he had enormous difficulty finding good advice about how to get off. And So we need better work on that. And we also need better work on the science of addiction and how 12-step programs that have been tailored for alcohol addiction, whether these are the most effective mechanisms or whether, as the science seems to be, that we need to take not from the alcohol model, but to have medication-assisted therapies so that people can get onto better, safer drugs. His book's called, very compellingly, In Pain. Yeah, I mean, Vox correspondent German Lopez announced a project this week to try to crowdsource more stories about rehab and all the ways in which rehab goes wrong or, you know, if you're really lucky, can go right. And as I was reading the introduction for that project, I realized I had never really thought about this in a systematic way of, like, what do we know? How many of these um, inpatient treatment centers really have good success rates? What are the strategies? Um, And is outpatient treatment often better? So um, I was reading a piece actually from 2016 by Maya Salovitz that was published on 538 called What Science Says to Do If Your Loved One Has an Opioid Addiction. And there was a ton of good information about there suggesting that, you know, evidence-based treatment is much more likely to be medication-assisted the way you were just talking about, Ruth. And it just made me realize, like, there is so much suffering and trauma that goes into this kind of cycling in and out of rehab and these heartbreaking decisions that families make to put up all this money. And you become a repeat customer over time, but you're also in this, like, very difficult situation often of trying to feel your way through it, of feeling a lot of shame or guilt about what's happening. And the idea that you would have such little support and that, like, as usual, our healthcare system would not be set up in a way where it would just take you where you need to go um, as a matter of course. It's just, it, it just is so frustrating. A couple of points on that. One is you can understand why, I mean, medication this is the, the the problem of opiate addiction is a problem of medication too it's that people have been prescribed drugs to treat something and those drugs have then turned and and become a dragon that is consuming them and so you can understand why why the idea that medication is the solution might make people alarmed like medication wasn't the solution for the original problem why would medication be the solution for this not i'm but i totally align with the evidence based theory of this. I just psychologically you can understand why that wouldn't, why that might be difficult for people. Um, two, 
we shouldn't let this pass without talking about the assault on the Affordable Care Act and the assault on Medicaid and the fact that once you that the that that part of dealing with the opiate epidemic is also helping people with mental health issues and and like giving them some sort of insurance backstopping in their life and and those who would those who would uh, strip the Affordable Care Act or undermine the private insurance plans that people are able to buy under the Affordable Care Act and undermine Medicaid are doing some damage to people's ability to to treat them to get treatment. Yeah, I mean, one of the things Maya says is that when opioid addiction happens, it's rarely someone's only mental health problem. And that totally makes sense that you would have a kind of coexisting other set of issues, whether it's depression or bipolar disorder or whatever. But I hadn't really thought about it again in like a systematic way before. And it it means, obviously, that when you're evaluating someone, you need to be asking those questions so that you're treating not just the addiction, but also looking for whether there's underlying mental health issues to deal with, too. Why do you think, Ruth, that the United States is, by orders of magnitude, the country with the biggest opiate problem in the world? I think that's a, a great question that I don't know that I know the answer to, um, but it may have to do with our fractured and individual-centric um, method of prescribing medication. I don't know if prescription drugs are more controlled in places with single-payer, single, single payer. so I'm kind of um, flailing in the dark here on that, but it's an interesting question that I think we need to figure out. You know, it's sort of like the gun question, right? There are a lot of, there are a lot of countries um, without that have American mental health problems. Yes. Number one. Um, I mean, don't you think part of it has to do with our affluence? Like you can see this in part as just like this enormous waste, like all of this money and healthcare getting targeted or channeled in this direction that turns out to be completely counterproductive. But it wouldn't start if you didn't have enough money to pay for the whole damn thing to begin with. No, but I think it's that's kind of intuitively backwards because other countries that have a stronger safety net of c- coverage for prescription medication, uh, it should be. The other day, I went to f- to fill a prescription, and my insur- they hadn't reached out to my insurance company. So it was $350, but once my insurance company kicked in, it was $7. So it can't be that in a place that has spottier insurance like the United States, it's the affluence that helps you get this medication because I was no way going to spend $350 for this medication. And so I just wonder if places that have a more comprehensive system of insurance also have tighter controls on access to prescription medication. Oh, yeah, I'm sure they do, because once you have single payer, you have an incentive to be setting prices lower right. and saving money and rationing care effectively. Like if you're rationing care, then presumably you're not prescribing more opioids than there are people in a particular place. We solved it. <laughs> single payer. There you go. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When, Emily Bazelon, you're having your whatever your form, whatever your uh, alcoholic form of soothing is, and you were chattering with somebody, what are you going to be chattering about? I read Curtis Sittenfeld's new short storybook this week because she'll be our guest in a few weeks, and I just loved it. I just inhaled it, basically. It's called If You Think It, I'll Say It. 
I am not normally a big short story fan. I find the form often to feel just like too tight. But these stories, first of all, they're just wonderful. And also they're kind of linked thematically in a way that made me feel like more that I was reading a chapter book than I usually feel with um, isolated short stories. So I totally recommend this book. And now I have another piece of chatter too. 100%. 100%. So good, right? It's so good. Yes. And I feel I the same I way about short stories. Up, yeah. Well, you were the one who I read it first and told me that was great. So, yes. Uh, I, I, I bo- so just good. like to um, cite the use of the phrase chapter book as if you were kind of graduating <laughs> to more difficult readers <laughs> as you went along there. Yeah. Well, you know, it sort of still remains useful, even though I'm no longer in third or fifth grade. And then my second piece of chatter I'm going to sneak in is to recommend a recent episode of This American Life called Ten Sessions with my New York Times Magazine colleague, Jamie Lowe. It's about her um, effort to do a particular kind of fast-track sort of therapy to deal with the past memory of uh, the past experience of a sexual assault. And it's wonderful. I mean, I am a huge fan of Jamie's, and this made me remember how much I loved the book she wrote a couple years ago, which is called Mental and is about her bipolar disorder. So listen to the episode, and then that should be your gateway, not your gateway drug, to Jamie's excellent book, Mental. Ruth, what is your chatter? So my chatter, I love uh, medical mystery stories and also stories about how how the medical system fails us in some ways. And so I was really taken by a piece in The New Yorker by Mike Mariani. Um, It's called A Town for People with Chronic Fatigue Syndrome. And it's about a place called Incline Village in Nevada near Lake Tahoe where a group of people with chronic fatigue syndrome have coalesced because it's pretty much but only episodically the only place in the U.S. where you can get a drug called Amplogen that has some good effects, though disputed, for people with chronic fatigue syndrome. And the reason it's one of the only places you can get it is that the Food and Drug Administration hasn't completely approved this medication because it for chronic fatigue syndrome, which is, of course, uh, very disputed by some physicians, though I have a friend with chronic fatigue syndrome. I think it's a real thing. And so it's a story of his pretty much seven-year effort to get access to this medication, which he still hasn't gotten access to, and the desperate people in this town who have moved there Uh, and gotten enormous success with the medication, but then have had it cut off. So it's just a very interesting little story about and compelling story. And I sort of feel like with chronic fatigue syndrome, we could all wake up tomorrow morning and be even more exhausted than we already are and have doctors that don't take our complaints seriously. And so I was just very struck by this. So as I am having my cocktail, I will be... Um, chatting about various ways in which our medical system, with all the promise of personalized medicine and individualized DNA testing, still fails actually enormous numbers of people with serious health issues. My chatter is about a remarkable theater-going, cinema-going, I should say, experience I had this weekend. I went with my father to the IMAX theater at the Air and Space Museum here in Washington, D.C., and we saw Apollo 11, which is a short 45-minute documentary about the Apollo 11 moon mission. It is unnarrated. It is simply uh, incredible archival footage 
some lost for many years, some just never gathered, some just restored in, in magnificent ways uh, that tells the story of the mission from John F. Kennedy's exhortation to go to the moon to the rocket taking off to, to landing on the moon to coming back to touchdown uh, after reentry. It's the most gorgeous, spectacular, astonishing 45 minutes of film I've seen in years. And if you, I don't think it would be, I don't think it would be good on television particularly. I don't think it would be, I mean, it would be fine in a regular theater if you can go to an IMAX and see it. I mean, IMAX theaters in general create magnificence, but if you can see it in an IMAX or see it in a big theater, I recommend it as strongly as I recommend anything. It is, it's just astonishing. And it's, it's just like you will vibrate from how, how moving and powerful it is. I also, of course, have listener chatters that, again, you listeners, you have lead such interesting lives. You're reading such interesting things, and you are sending those great things to us at Slate Gabfest on Twitter. And I want to encourage you to keep doing it because it's just a delight for me every week to get them. This week, I want to call out uh, David Amon, at David Amon, who I feel like maybe had an earlier listener chatter, now that I'm looking at your name, at David Amon. And... Uh, David Amon is recommending a story about a Canadian woman who has been the foster parent, along with her husband, to 200 children. It's called The Woman with 200 Kids, a woman named Cindy Sterling. And it's just a, like a beautiful story. And if you want to have a good cry and feel about feel good about somebody who's done an astonishing amount of altruistic good work in the world for children, read about Cindy Sterling and this story. It's really totally inspirational. That is our show for today. The Gaffest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Melissa Kaplan helped here in Washington. Ryan McAvoy in New Haven. Our researcher is, of course, the indefatigable Bridget Dunlap. You should follow us on Twitter at at SlateGabFest. For Emily Bazelon and Ruth Marcus, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. Please come to our live show in St. Paul on September 18th. Go to Slate.com slash live for tickets. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? I hope you are not in the throes of a hurricane. Hope you are having a good post-Labor Day back-to-work period. Um, You, if you're in North Carolina, you might be in the throes of a hurricane. You're also in the throes of a legal hurricane. There was a a decision this week from a three-judge panel of North Carolina state judges throwing out an egregious partisan gerrymander. Emily Bazelon, take us to North Carolina. Tell us what happened. <laughs> yeah. So the state legislative districts in North Carolina have been, uh, you know, extremely gerrymandered since the 2010 census. This is a long-running lawsuit that wound up back in state court. And the challengers to the districts, which were drawn very much to benefit Republicans, prevailed based on this three-judge panel ruling that is rooted in the state constitution and the fair and free elections guarantee that is in North Carolina's constitution. It's a tremendous victory in the state for people who want more competitive elections. Um, 
It's obviously uh, potentially a victory for Democrats. So far, it only affects the state legislative districts, not the congressional map. I'm a little mystified about why there wasn't a parallel lawsuit already in place challenging the congressional map. But now various groups, the Democratic Party and Common Cause, are talking about also challenging the congressional map in North Carolina. You know, I think the thing more broadly that's so interesting about this is that the Supreme Court in June said basically we're taking federal judges out of the business of monitoring and preventing gerrymandering. We think judges can't handle this. They don't have the tools. There's a kind of um, faux modesty in Chief Justice John Roberts's opinion about the limitations of the judiciary to deal with this problem. And you see in this ruling, as you saw, I think, in a previous ruling from the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, that judges absolutely are capable of doing this kind of monitoring. That, I mean, what I have said all about this for a long time in writing about it is that if people have the tools to draw the maps using, um, you know, software and computer technology, computer programming, you can whip up so many thousands of different variations of maps based on how you distribute voters. Once that technology exists to draw the maps, well, judges, they don't have to be drawing all the maps themselves, but they can also figure out how to assess it. It is not, in the end, rocket science. So I think what you're seeing from these state courts are a really responsible effort to try to make uh, elections more free and fair, just like the state constitution says. So I think one of the interesting things that this brings up is to what extent can state courts and state constitutions save us in an era when the Supreme Court is dominated by conservatives who want out of these political thickets um, or other issues. And this has been a conversation that's been going on since Justice Brennan wrote about it in 1977, talking about how we should spend more time paying attention to state constitutions, which had been kind of laboratories of democracy and judicial um, lawmaking as kind of uh, suggestions for where the federal courts and the Supreme Court could go. And now maybe a little bit, but I want to really caveat this, in a conservative, as the judiciary lower courts and the Supreme Court are increasingly dominated by conservative judges, whether state constitutions and state judges are a potential alternative. One conservative judge, Jeffrey Sutton, has written a, uh, on the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, has written a book arguing about the vibrancy and alternative method of state constitutions. And to that, I would say, this is great that North Carolina did this, but yes, but. Um, and the but is that state courts are often and unfortunately politically um, elected, politically appointed. GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.